You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Ashley Church is well known as the property guy and a favourite amongst RCR listeners. He's a former candidate for the National Party, but he wants to talk politics today. I thought I'd get him on to the show after listening to him and Rodney Hyde talking about his faith and his journey to discover that faith. Ashley, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Crunch. Thanks, mate. Thank you. I wanted to reach out and have a chat with you because I listened to your interview with Rodney Hyde the other day, and you were talking about the impact Jesus Christ has had on your life and and your Christian faith. And I don't really, really want to talk about the specifics of that because it just triggered in my mind that your approach to politics now or, you know, the political life has probably been colored a lot by your faith. And I'm interested to explore a little bit of that and some of the things that we're witnessing now in society. Absolutely. And, yes. and, and you're right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it really touched me that interview with Rodney. And, you know, I can see Rodney's grappling with some really big issues. And you and I seem to have sort of hit our stride um, with our faith at about the same time. And we've had some challenges in our lives. And our faith is our grounding point now. Yeah, absolutely. So so for me, it's been a battle of about 40 years. I mean, I've been nominally a Christian since I was about 18, but it's been, mm. like you, it's something I've sort of really sort of come to terms with in terms of what it means for me just in the last two or three years in particular. And it's interesting because you're right, it's completely transformed my life in respect of all sorts of things, including, as, as, as you quite correctly say, uh, my, my attitude to, to politics and how the country should be run. Yeah, you once stood for the National Party, didn't you? Oh, when I was a baby, yeah, when I was a nappy back in, <laughs> back in 1987 in the middle of the uh, the Rogernomics reforms and the seat that uh, couldn't possibly have been won by anybody but Labour. But it was it was an interesting period, and I went on from there to stand for the, the City Council in Napier a couple of years later and bolted in based on name recognition. So, um, yeah, went, went down that track a long time ago. Would you Would you consider yourself to be a natural... National Party person now? No. no. If you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have said yes. Now, I'm a natural conservative, so my vote goes where with the party that has the most conservative uh, political positions on the, the issues that matter to me, which means that I'm not, I can't be taken for granted as a national voter in the way I might have been able to be 20 years ago. That's the, that's the problem with these big political parties, isn't it, though, Ashley, that they take voters for granted. They take their support for granted. They do. They do. They do. It's interesting in respect of national too because because I haven't changed, and I suspect you probably haven't politically either, but the National Party has changed. It's changed substantially over the last 20 years in particular, and it's, and it's moved, and I understand why it's, if I understand the politics of it, but it's moved more and more to the centre and then over to the centre-left um, in an effort to, to to sort of mop up as many of those votes from the centre as possible. In the process of doing that, it's closed out people on the, uh, on the, I wouldn't say the extreme right, but more to the right of the National Party that once would have been part of the traditional rump of that party. And you saw that in particular with... Um, with the, the, the pandemic and some of the stuff that took part there. And you're seeing that now it's, it's manifesting itself in the formation of these little splinter parties that are really people who, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have been natural supporters of National. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people say to me, oh, you've left, the, you know, you've left the National Party. And I always say, no, the National Party left me. I left you. Yeah, totally, but, totally. But, I, I feel exactly the same. Because if you look at the founding principles of the National Party, I still subscribe to those. It's a small government, individual responsibility, protecting private property rights. And we've got this woke, wet, sort of dripping National Party that people (laughs) think are are Tories or think they're right wing. But you mentioned it. You said they're centre-left, and I agree with you on that. I don't think the National Party's even remotely conservative in any way. No, that's been a transition, Cam. It's it's dur- yeah. during Key's era. Um, I would argue that that was that was done for political reasons. It was done because Key saw itself saw the National Party as, as, as sort of an all encompassing machine, which looked to take as much of the vote as it possibly could, and they did that for reasons that were designed to keep 
uh, centre-left voters in the camp. But over the last few years, it's almost as if they've taken that on as their new mantle. So that's now who they are. It's no longer done for political reasons. It's good to, and you only have to look at the voting record of quite a large number of the members of the current caucus to see that that's actually who they are, certainly in terms of their, their, their attitude towards moral issues. Yeah, well, that's one thing that Helen Clark was very successful at doing, is moving the Overton window firmly to the left and dragging yep. you know, the National Party across with them uh, in order to compete. Yep. And um, that's yep. one thing I admire about her is her ability to influence and change New Zealand to being more left-wing than it was previously. Yeah. Interestingly, that's not always a bad thing. I mean, if you go back to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and look at some of the what would have been regarded as, as conservative or traditional values back then, which were borderline racist, and, yeah. and were probably misogynist. That stuff, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm completely supportive of what's happened in that space. And to the extent that that's had an impact on the National Party and right-wing parties around the world, it's been a good thing. But it's some of the other stuff. It's the stuff around abortion on demand um, and some of this wokery around uh, identity politics and stuff, which, which is not about human rights. It's about basically, it's about pursuing an agenda which is foreign to anything that we recognise as Kiwis. That's the stuff I'm grappling with. Yeah, it's, it's policing language and thought through totally, totally. Finger, finger wagging and tut tutting, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah, granny state or nanny state. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Um, you mentioned in in I, I looked through your website and I I found an article yep. that you'd written that said that you really struggled with sales and um, you, you mentioned a couple <laughs> of books. Now I've read those books and um, I've I've yep. done some of those courses and I even. Uh, you know, invested in Brian Tracy's um, sales programs, and it actually made yeah, me yeah. a great salesperson. Now, you're in that article. You're talking about your sales job uh, on your faith and how you really struggle with that. But I listen, you know, listen to that interview with Rodney Hyde, and I reckon you've got your sales pitch just right. <laughs> it's interesting because when I wrote that, and that was about nine months ago, I, I was still transitioning. That's a terrible word to use now, given its new meaning. Yeah. But I was still. I was still going. I was still going through the sort of process, this osmosis process in my mind, where I was trying to work out exactly where that sat. So the point of that article that you're referring to was, um, I was saying that when I was young, because I used to have sales roles when I was young yeah, before I sort yeah. of found my stride in my career, um, that I was a shopping salesperson, and that, uh, and and I was shopping for two reasons: one, because I, I, I didn't like rejection, and the other reason was because I was lazy. And, and so I found it difficult to sort of sustain an interest in selling stuff. And I was comparing that to my faith and saying I found it very difficult to talk about my faith and using that kind of as a springboard mm. to make have that conversation. It's interesting, though, is that the last few months as I've sort of become increasingly of the view that, well, you know what, it actually doesn't matter what other people think. Because it, that, that fear that I might have had in a sales role where I was selling insurance or, you yeah. know, computers or whatever it was I was selling at the time, that doesn't apply to my faith because you either take it or leave it. And and also the other thing I think that changes too is I'm old and ugly now. You know, I, w- I was a young guy back then and I was still trying to sort of impress people and, yeah. and, and maintain a certain um, – that, that, none of that matters to me now. I've done all that. I've, I've had that part of my career. Now I've, I've got the view that I've got certain things I need to achieve before I die and 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 I'll do them to the best of my ability and if people don't like it, well, that's tough luck. Yeah, it's kind of the same position that I've ended in, you know, except I, I had a very close run with dying. Uh, and I'm lying there in the hospital bed thinking, yeah, I dodged that bullet. What am I going to do now in what I've got left? And, you know, totally, it totally focuses your mind. And um, but but I see it as a, a sale, sales training. I mean, I've always said to politicians who have asked me how they can get into you know politics, how they can. I said, well, you need to learn how to sell. Is if you don't know how to sell, how are you going to sell yourself, and how are you going to sell your ideas? And yep. uh, and faith is exactly the same thing. And maybe you know we need to form a little sales training team that uh, can go out there <laughs> to teach people how to sell their faith better. Because yeah. I think we do a bad job at it sometimes. <laughs> the, the other thing, and I don't know whether this is personal to me or it's something everybody can learn from, but the thing I've learned too, and again, it just comes back to age and experience 
is I tend to find now that I can use little, par- I'll call them parables, but just little things that have happened in my life. Yeah. And they're kind of little openings. You can use them as examples and then you segue into the stuff you really want to say. So rather than just sort of jumping on people and hitting them between the eyes, it's about using experiences to draw upon where you can actually, and they're life experiences that people can actually associate with or, or, or are familiar with that then lead into this other stuff. And I'm not quite good at that. I do it both in my writing and my speaking, and I'd like to think that's, you know, that parcel of the journey I've gone through. Well, you know, it's kind of biblical as well because you look at all the parables, yeah. um, you know, and the stories right. of the apostles, and you look at even uh, Paul's change from Saul to Paul on yeah, the road to yeah. Damascus, you know, and their, their life story, I mean, that that covers a hardened killer. You know, he yeah. he um, he went out there and persecuted Christians uh, and then became one himself. Uh, and then used that to, you know, perhaps become one of the greatest storytellers in the Bible. Totally, totally. It's interesting, though, Cam, because you talked, you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago people approaching you and saying, how can I get into politics? And I almost think that's the wrong question. I mean, I understand the question because it's a question I would have asked myself when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but for me, politics should be about being taken, kicking and screaming into it. It should be about right. people who don't want to necessarily do it but but are drawn to it because because they've got something to offer and something to add and something to contribute to the country. But that's not what we've got with the current crop right across the house. We've got people who are there because they see it as a career or they see it as an ego thing or a status thing. And it, it, and that's not unique to New Zealand. That's right throughout the Western world. And it just gets the wrong result. It gets the wrong, the wrong sort of people and the wrong results ultimately for your nation. Well, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. And that's actually what I counsel, depending on the age of them, if they're quite young, like, and when I say quite young, I, I think under 40 now is young. And yep. uh, and I say to them, you know, especially when they're like in their 20s, how do I get into politics? Hang on, you haven't lived. You don't know anything. You think you do, yep. but you, do, you actually don't. You need another 20 years of yep. working, you know, to to get some life's challenge, some of life's challenges out of the way. Because uh, life is hard, and if you're you know twenty something, you're going into par- into parliament. People are going to be looking to you to provide solutions, but you haven't even lived. Well, with all due respect to her, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but but that that perfectly sums up Jacinda Ardern. Mm. I've got no doubt that Jacinda Ardern had had twenty years on it. She probably would have made a, a good prime minister. As it as it happens, she'll go down in history as the worst prime minister this country's ever had. The most, certainly the most incompetent. And that I think that purely reflection of the fact that she just got that job way too young in her life. Um, and and needed more experience and more time and the ability to actually balance decisions rather than apply ideology in the way that she did. So that's that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. But there are lots of those people that get in there without having had a scarec of real life experience. If they've had a job at all, it's been in the public service in a lot of cases. Who 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 think that they've got some ability to be able to tell people how to live their lives? It's the wrong way to do things. Oh, totally. You know the. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, though, paved isn't with it? Good intentions, yeah, 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 and totally. Jacinda Ardern is, is, you know, I used to think she was a nice person, but you know, somewhat wonky in her thinking, until we had the, the pandemic, and then I came to the conclusion that actually, out of all the politicians over all the years that I've met, and I've been involved in politics all my life, so you know, I'm 55 this year. I've yep. met hundreds of them. Uh, I know them intimately. And she's the one person that I, of all those politicians, and everyone can have different views on them, but of all the politicians I met, she's the one person who I actually think was evil because of the actions yeah, that she I, did. I understand that point, and I know a lot of people share it. I'm not quite sure I would go that far, only only because when I look at the, the, the way that she responded to things, I recognised a lot of myself in terms of... So I had some pretty strong ideological views when I was young, and they were yeah. views that I genuinely believed, and they're and the views that I, I don't hold at all now, but yep. they're views that I genuinely believed at the time were the, the right solution. And, and if I think about how I might have applied those were I in a position to do so, I'm not sure I would have done it all that differently to the way that she did. They were different policies, obviously, but it's this blind belief in your own, this hubris, this blind belief in your own rightness and the fact that if only people would do things the way that you believe that they should be done, that the world would be a better place. And I guess, and maybe I'm naive, but I guess there's an aspect of that with her, in my view, with her, I'm thinking, I don't know that she was necessarily evil, but I do think she was absolutely driven 
by A, lack of experience, B, incompetence, and C, this massive ideology which drove everything that she actually did. And that actually got worse. That doubled down, I think, because she was surrounded by people who supported it. Um, And also the result of the 2020 election, which I think she read as a massive endorsement of her, when in fact all that was, and you saw it right around the Western world, was a lot of people basically saying, we just want to be safe, we don't want any change. Um, and so, I, But I think she read that as a huge endorsement, and that she, she almost started to double down after that point and actually get worse, because she thought that there was a huge support for what she was doing, and therefore she was untouchable. Um, evil? Don't know. Time will tell. History will be interesting when it judges what she did. Well, it's, it's, I, I mean, I wrote an article about that uh, on the BFD called The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, and I explained why I came to that. And it came down to, you know, she professed to be this epitome of kindness. And then she, you know, she said and did things that showed that underneath her and the people who supported her, and Chris Hipkins is one of those, were yep. addicted to power and absolute tyrants and use the pandemic to make profound changes to New Zealand society, where they pitted uh, mate against mate, family against family. They, you know, uh, othered people. They, uh, you know, this is supposed to be, uh, she's supposed to be a politician that's inclusive. And then everything she did was about exclusivity. So if you didn't take the vaccine, you were going to be excluded from society. The yep. race relations landscape in New Zealand was has has significantly eroded from where we were yep. at, you know, under uh, over many many years. It's now, I think it's been set. I think race relations in New Zealand have been set back fifty years by like her government. Maybe not fifty, but for certainly for a long time. Yeah, I agree. I and, agree. And it's interesting. For a, sorry, carry on. No, no, no. It's okay. Well, no, I was just going to say, because you say all that, and I agree with you completely, and I looked at the polls for a long time, um, certainly over the last 18 months, stubbornly staying up at around 36, 37%, and I could never understand that, because I, was, I, I, I looked at both, and I'd think, are these people seeing the same New Zealand that I'm seeing? Not just mm-hmm. in respect of race relations mm-hmm. and the division that she created, but also just in respect of all of the measures of, of uh, against the things that they claimed that they were going to achieve, whether you're talking about housing or health statistics or poverty or all that other stuff that they, they claimed they were going to do, where they had failed, 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 basically in everything that they had done. And yet those poll numbers were still stubbornly staying up, getting close to 40, which did my head in. I, I couldn't understand. They're coming down now, I see, and, I, and some polls are coming down as I was 26, 27, which is, which is probably still too high in my view. But, but but finally, the country starting to see. But for a long time, those things that you're quite correctly highlighting didn't seem to be resonating with the average Kiwi. They just didn't seem to get that we were in such bad shape and respectable stuff. Well, I mean, I put that down to a combination of uh, Stockholm syndrome and uh, right. and Pavlov's dogs. And uh, yeah, you know, you're probably right. People just got used to having being told what to do. And we saw this the other day. You know, there was a a fire alarm at Eden Park at one of the World Cup games. And they had this guy on TV saying, the alarm was going off and and I couldn't find anybody who would tell me what to do. And I, was, <laughs> I, I sat there and I thought, you're a Labour voter. Yeah. <laughs> you're stubbornly yeah. stuck I, in because you want to be told what to do. Yeah, I had a conversation with Paul Brennan a few weeks back on uh, on your station, and we were talking about this. And I made the comment to him that if uh, if if, if Adern in one of our one pm stand ups during COVID had come out and said, um, in order to combat COVID, we require everybody to to if you're out in public to wear a uh, a um, a polka dot onesie. Uh, I guarantee the following day, probably 20% of the population would have been out there proudly supporting their polka dot onesie because they and, were being told to do that. Yeah, and there would have been, uh, you know. Uh, news reports of uh, fights breaking out at the warehouse um, over polka dot onesies. Yeah, yeah, and people being dogged in for not wearing it. I mean, yeah. that, that was how ridiculous it got. It was there. There was no empirical analysis of why we were doing these things. It was coming from the you know the 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 the, the uh, podium the, of, the truth. of truth. And Podium of truth, yeah, and and that was the end of it. And that that was the part I found so hard to understand from a fellow Kiwis because we're normally pretty decent, reasonable people and we're pretty sensible. Common sense went out the window with a lot of people during that period. Well, I think part of the problem is in New Zealand we've got a large, very large percentage of the population whose 
mantra in life is go along to get along. And yeah, yeah. It, it's um I think that actually caused a lot of the problems. I had people saying to me, Oh, come on, Cam, do the right thing. I said, Oh, and I'd say to them, Well, what is the right thing? Who said it's the right thing? I said, Oh, well, you know, Jacinda Ardern said it. I said, Hang on, that's the leader of the yeah. Labour Party. When since when have you ever listened to anything that a leader of the Labour Party has ever said? And now yeah. Yeah. you're saying we need to get go along to get along. Stuff that. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah. It was, I, I completely agree. It was a weird, weird period. It was interesting. I saw a, um, I saw a meme a few months back that sort of the, 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 the nonsense of this, and I think it said something along the lines, "I've got, I've got a headache, so I'm taking a Panadol to help my community." And it was, it was <laughs> that was that was essentially what was going on. It was this nonsense that was being fed to us that we were believing because we were being told it by somebody who we thought was in a position to know. We weren't really thinking about what that stuff actually meant. I'm not, by the way, I'm not a conspiracist, so I don't buy into a lot of the stuff on the right around, you know, vaccines and COVID and stuff. There may have been some truth to some of that, but I think generally I think there was an overreaction. But I can understand where that stuff came from. It was a reaction to some of the nonsense that was being peddled and that we were being told around the justification for some of the measures that were being taken. Never before has our public health legislation been turned on its head, pulled inside out and used in a way that it was never designed to do. I mean, you know, the isolation rules applied to people who had transmissible diseases um, themselves, not the whole population. You know, it was designed to, if you've got, you know, uh, smallpox, for example, then we're going to isolate you and the immediate people in your house and everyone else can get on with their lives. They turned that on its head and and said, we're going to lock you all up so you don't catch this thing. And yep. we were just, uh, you know, it was nonsensical. And then I'm sitting there thinking, does any, has anybody not learned anything from history? You know, we are seeing no. here a masterclass in propaganda that's probably making, you know, Joseph Goebbels sit there, clap his hands and do a little sort of jig that, yes, my my strategies have worked, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Where you and I might disagree, I gave us a lot of thought over sort of that period between 2000 and late 2020 and 2021. I guess where we might differ, and I differ with a lot of people who probably is, I, I, I think that that first, say, nine months, maybe 12 of lockdown, I kind of get that. And I'll tell you why I get it, because because when this thing first hit in early 2020, there were... Uh, there were, I was going to say predictions, but there, there were some specialists saying, hey, this could be as bad as the Spanish flu. Now, I don't know if you know much about the history of the Spanish yeah, flu in 2018. Yeah. yeah, so it, it killed 7% of the world's population. So if uh, COVID had been as bad as that, that, you were talking half a billion people that would have died. And in, in the absence of knowing whether it was going to be that bad or not, I kind of get the original lockdowns. I understand that. I think it was, and I, and I think National would have probably done the same thing. Where I differ with the government is once the figures started to come through, once the mortality numbers started to come through, and that was late 2020, early 2021, and the mortality rates were, and, and this is this is a fact, Cam, mortality rates were about one one hundredth yep. of the Spanish flu. I think there exactly. was there was six million died worldwide versus half a billion, which would have been the number had it had it been at the same level as the Spanish flu. At that point, that was the point for governments around the world to say this thing isn't nearly as bad as we anticipated. It's basically just a bad flu. We need to open things up again as quickly as possible and get life back to normal. Yeah. And she didn't. She actually doubled down. She actually made it. That was the point where the country should have said, "Hey, hang on, this isn't good. This, this isn't right." But we didn't. We just continued to go along with it. Well, and you know, we had Auckland locked down for one case. You know, for for months on end. Yeah. And now, you, yep. you know, every day there's thousands of cases in the community. God knows why there is. But are people still testing? You know, is, is it a thing? But but the flu, the bad flu. Exactly. We I'm were... very, I'm, yeah, I'm very clearly of that opinion now. It's a bad flu. It's a little bit worse. If you look at some of the other flus over the last 20 years, the mortality rates are a little higher, but not, not appreciately. But if you're um, fit, and, if and, you're fit and healthy and eat well and got, got you know, fine, yeah. then you're fine. If you're, yep. if you're fat, old, and um, got a whole lot of other things, well, things are a little bit more difficult for you, but that's life. You made your choices. Yep. By the way, the argument I get from people when I put what I just said to them is they'll say, oh, well, the reason that it was only $6 million is because we had these medication measures and we had vaccination. So my argument to that is, I know it is rubbish, 
And so let me, so my argument to that is, well, let's say the mortality rate had been twice what it was. Let's say if we hadn't had those measures, it had been twice what it was. It was still tiny yeah. by comparison to the reason we went into it. The reason we went into it is because there was a fear that it could kill half a billion people worldwide. That was, people forget that. That was the rationale. It, yeah. it wasn't. A, it was one one hundredth of that. Um, uh, it, it, the, 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 the the measures just didn't stack up. And that what people forget too is that rationale came from uh, a scientist in the UK with a track record of making appalling chicken little sky is falling um, <laughs> type predictions that never come true. Yep. And yet everyone bought yep. into that. All of our modeling that was done, we had, oh, no, we need to trust the science. We've got these data modelers. And if you looked into the data model that they all used here in New Zealand, they didn't reinvent the wheel. They actually took the wonky wheel off that guy at the Imperial College yeah. and brought it into here and extrapolated fanciful yeah. numbers that, that weren't even remotely close to where we were going to end up. Yeah, That is a tough one, though, because what if it had gone the other way? What if it had been, you know, it's easy for me to be wise in hindsight, but what if it had been uh, much more serious than it was? And, that, and that's why I say there's an aspect of this that I understand. I do understand the initial, the initial mitigation measures. It's, not, it's what they did subsequent to that that I have a real problem with. And then, you know, and, and probably going up the ground you talk a lot about, but then with the, the parliamentary protests uh, where, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I didn't necessarily agree with a lot of what was being protested there, but people asking legitimate questions, Kiwis protesting, in a way, civil youth protesting in a way that they're entitled to do, and the way that that was treated, not just by the way by by Labour who who were appalling in their treatment of the protesters, but even by the National Party, even by the National. I mean, all Luxon needed to do was to go down and talk to those people and say, look, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I'm here to listen. And, and he would have won massive accolades from the country. Instead, he chose to take the lead of a prime minister who'd, who'd lost any sense of who she was, and and was acting like a dictator. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the one thing that you know, I cannot abide of both the ACT Party and the National Party was that unwillingness yep. to talk. And and that's yep. you know, that's one of the reasons why when I was asked to come on uh reality check radio and host a show, is that I you know, I felt that you know, the changes in my life and things like that, that we'd lost the ability to talk to people. We've got yep. this polarization and, and segregation of thoughts and ideas. And if you dare have an, a thought or idea that's from somewhere else, well, then you're a, you know, you're a splitter, you're, 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 you're wrong, you get shouted down, you get called a racist, you get called all sorts of other labels. And we've lost that ability to talk to each other. Totally. And by the way, I hate the fact that Winston Peters, who I blame for the position we're currently in, <laughs> did go down and talk to the protesters. That that really irks me. <laughs> so the people the people who should have didn't, and yet, and yet, and yet here was him uh, prepared to go down and do that. Well, the thing about that too is that he had media following him around during that, and he told them all to go away. I'm not here to talk to you. I'm here to listen to these no. people. And he didn't make a speech and he didn't stand up and grandstand. He just walked and talked and listened. And that's Smart what politics. that's what we when we voted in MMP, we wanted to remove the power of the parties and the two-party state that we'd become with Labour yeah. and National and swapping shirts and really not getting anywhere by doing that. When people voted in MMP, they had this motherhood and apple pie naive view that somehow we're all going to get along now and we'd have these governments that, that talked and listened and, and represented a majority of people. And the reality of MMP is that the politicians just treated it exactly the same. They just found a different way to do it. Um, Back and- in the early '90s, when uh, MMP was being debated, I did a, I did a speaker series on them on, with Michael Laws, and so yep. Michael was debating the pro MMP position, and I was debating the uh, the anti. And it's interesting because many of the arguments that I was putting at the time around why M- MMP wouldn't work were being poo pooed by Michael and, and pretty much anybody who was pro. And yet, the, most of them have actually turned out to be true with the fullness of time and, and actually seeing this thing in place. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he, again, easy to be wise in hindsight. Well, that's how wisdom comes because you've experienced life, exactly what we were talking about earlier, you know, when people go in, into politics too early without any life experiences. They don't have any wisdom. They make stupid decisions. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. 
this, so this election. So, sorry, yep. I was just going to say, in fact, that's exactly the same question you were just going to ask. What's your handle on how it's all going to come, how it's all going to pan out on, on in October? That's exactly what I was going to ask. Actually, I was going to say this election <laughs> is, you know, in all my life of looking at elections, everyone there's always these, you know, superlatives. This is the most important election in a lifetime. There's, and I've seen, yep. you know, 1990 with the landslide of um, of Jim Bolger. I've seen the, you know, the end of the Muldoon era. Um, I've seen the end of Helen Clark. That all seems to be so small in terms of the issues and things that we were debating back then compared to now. Yep. And I think at, at the core issues that I'm seeing that I think are important are a loss of freedoms, a loss of rights, yep. uh, a yep. rise of state power, a rise of the deep yep. state, uh, all yep. of these things. And I'm, I'm, I'm just interested to know what your thoughts are on this election, how important it is that we really put a stake in the ground here and say, no, no more, we're not having any more of this, and what those things are exactly that we don't want to have any more. I have exactly the same view. I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned about the, 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 the rise of wokeism in particular and the impact that that's had on the, the, the national and the international psyche of, of the way that people think. But although when I say that, I suspect that's got more to do with certainly those on the right, the fear of saying things rather than necessarily believing this stuff. And the reason I say that is it's interesting, the Posey Parker thing, um, mm. up until that point, there had been very little debate on the whole issue of gender ideology. And you could have you could have been excused for believing at that stage that everybody went along with it. The Posey Parker thing kind of split that wide open and gave those of us who were on the other side of that, that issue the, the permission to basically talk. And now there's a much more open dialogue on both sides of that. So so that was a, that was encouraging. That's a positive thing, which is interesting because she achieved that without actually opening her mouth. So, so, but putting that aside, there are some really fundamental divides on the left and the right. It's no longer left and right. It's, it's, no. it's alt-left and alt-right to some degree. Um, so this is a really important election. And I guess my worry about the outcome of this election is the extent to which some of that, because for me, putting aside everything I just said about the position of the National Party and the fact that they're currently sitting on the centre-right, the centre-left, sorry, yeah. um, I still think it's really important that we get a change of government, even if it's not an ideal government, we've got to get rid of what we've currently got in place. And in that regard, I've got some real concerns about the extent to which the uh, the right-wing vote currently is splintered and the splintering of, of individual little parties, proliferation of little parties that have popped up and who are on their own, none of them are taking any particularly large share, but collectively they might take 7 or 8%, which could actually be quite important when it comes to the election by result. Now, my view on that when people ask me is, this is the election to vote national or act, not to vote for anybody else to vote for national or act. If, if you've got concerns about traditional conservative politics, wait till the election following, because there'll be a three-year period when once you've got a national act coalition in power, then you can start thinking about centre-right alternatives to that. Right now, the priority for everybody on the right is to vote for the only two parties that can actually form a government, and that's national and act. And I've got a real concern that I, I, as each day passes, I have that concern lessened because as the polls are going in the right direction, Labor's dropping, I think the chances of that are less than they were a month ago, but I'm still concerned. So, so for me, my gut feeling is this is going to be a pretty comfortable win for, for a, a national-led coalition, but it may well be a parliament that's got a fragmentation of, of some other weird and wonderful parties as well. You may, you, you may well have a, a, a New Zealand first back in parliament, um, you know, you, you could even have top. That would be an extreme result, but who knows? Um, so you may have a proliferation of little parties and and then a government sitting on sort of 63 to 64%. Um, and that'll be interesting if that happens. It'll be interesting in terms of what that means. But what we've got to do is we've got to break the, the, the stronghold that the, that the sort of the woke ideology of, of Adern and her cohort um, have had over the country over the last six years. The wasted vote is a concern because at the 2020 election, 9% or 257,000 or 258,000 odd votes were were yep. wasted. You know, um, now 75,000 of those votes were New Zealand first and 43,000 of those yep. were, were top. But there was yep. all of these, you know, little parties there soaking up small amounts of, of uh, support and really have got zero chance of getting into parliament. And, and I hear what you're saying yep. about uh, National Enact. 
I think there's a distinct possibility that we will see a return of New Zealand first. And my view is is that national is the other side of the coin that Labour is on, and there is a risk of wokeism infecting the National Party, and so we need to have a bulwark, a bulwark against that, uh, that sort of wokeism of the National Party, and that in some respects is act, but then David Seymour's a little bit sort of woke as well, you know, um, and a bit squishy on some of these things. And so then the, the you need the hard conservatives like New Zealand First, or I don't think there's realistically anybody else uh, out there that would temper that and say, no, no, we're not going to do that. We, we, we're not going to have... You say that, mm. Sorry, mate, I was just going to say, it's interesting you say that about ACT, because when you look at ACT, so so ACT on, on economics are, are entirely orthodox, and, and yes. you know I would support pretty much most of their positions. But when you start looking at their social policies, there's some wacky stuff in there. They're all over the place. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's much less easy to define as, as being centre-right. I agree with, I understand, I mean, I don't like New Zealand first, I don't like Winston, I don't particularly yeah. idea the, the idea of them being in Parliament, but I understand your point. <clears throat> I guess my argument is that the time to look at creating a strong um, alternative Conservative Party is in three years between 2023 and 2026. Yeah. That's the time, whether, whether it's a coalition of the existing Conservative groups or a brand new force that comes up, I don't know, but that's the time to talk about it once we've yeah. safely got a... Yeah, you know, I tend a, to agree a, with you on, on that. But the, the problem with all these small parties, and it's a perennial problem with them, is they're very usually driven either by a single agenda or a dynamic um, personality that you know has developed a bit of a cult Correct. following, and they don't like Correct. playing. They don't play well with others because uh, you Correct. know the, the, it's like the libertarians. You know, I, I kind of like you know resonated with them for years and years and years, but the reality of them getting into parliament was very small chance of of them ever yep. getting there. Um, so consequently, their ideas were never actually entertained. And I I once told them go and you know, infiltrate other parties and spread your ideas inside those because I don't think National's ever going to be a conservative, a conservative party. You know, it, not in Again, name, yeah. not even in a, with a little C. It's like a silent C. Um, I don't think they're ever going to be that again. I completely agree. And so there, there is there is an opportunity for that. It's just not this election. Interestingly, I've had uh, I think it's just two. I don't think there's any other. But two different political parties have approached me in the last six or seven months asking for advice on you know, what they can do to 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 increase their share and and what they should be doing and what you know what sort of threat. And in both cases, I've said to them. Hold up your tent and go and catch it all and think about what you're thinking about now in nine months' time after we've safely got a national government about. Neither of them wanted to hear that. Although no. I noticed that one of them did exactly that later on. I won't, won't mention who it was, but one which which was a, a, never really made any sort of impact. But I see that they've now uh, they've now folded their tent and joined into uh, New Zealand First, which was a good move. But uh, it, it's a hard thing to hear because these people have, as you say, they've either got an enduring philosophy that they think is you know it's sort of a social credit approach to politics, yeah. uh, or they've got a dynamic leader, or at least what they think is a dynamic leader is somebody who's going to sort of lead the masses to the promised land. And it, 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 you know there, there are very few Winston. Peters and Bob Jones on the political no. landscape. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, in November 2022, you wrote an article on your site called The Biggest Threat. Yeah. Do you think that is the same threat now? I can't no. remember what I wrote. Remind me what that said, Ken. <laughs> you said how to counter the biggest threat to our nation, and uh, you basically talk about you – know, we've kind of touched on this – where differences in political opinions are now dividing families, ending friendships, sometimes leading to violent confrontation between protagonists. And you're talking about how we've lost civility uh, and that there's anger in almost every debate. Do you still see that as... Oh, yeah. Yes, it's probably receded a little bit, and it's receded a little bit, I think, because it's almost like we've a lot of us have woken up out of this amnesia that we were in. So there was a period between 2020 and probably mid-2022 where I think um, that what I said in that article was absolutely true. It was this this protracted division where where there was no ability, you know, there was no ability to stand around a barbecue and 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 have honest differences of opinion. You either hold one position. COVID was a good example of that, but it was also true in things like you know the whole woke gender around gender and and some of these other things. I think that's receded a little bit, and I think it's receded for two reasons. I think it's come back a little bit because, as I say, we're sort of 
we've come back from the brink and actually realised how bad things have gotten. That's not who we are as a country. But I also think if you look around the Western world and you see that there are um, that the right is starting to win. Uh, government in, in, in national elections in different parts of the world, I think that's also having a little bit of an impact as people are starting to realise, hey, perhaps this stuff isn't the... If, if I think about, for example, the agenda of the Greens and, and to a lesser degree Labour, it's, it's just repackaged communism, socialism. It's the same stuff that hasn't worked over the last 40 or 50 years. And what happens is every 20 or so years, the generation of kids that... Um, you know, there's a new generation comes along, doesn't realise what a massive failure was, how many people died in the name of those things and, and, and you know, buy into this idea that it's going to work again. Um, but but right now, if, if that had some ascendancy over the last two or three years, I think it's sort of gone off the boil a little bit. And it's interesting because the, the spluttering voice of that now is the Greens. You know, look yeah. at some of the stuff that's coming out of the Greens. They're kind of the the last hurrah of that stuff as we move back toward a, what I think is a more practical centre right, centre left position. Um, and and I hope, I hope I'm right, that if we get a, a national coalition for all of its faults and for all of the issues that I might take with it, you'll mm. see a return to some of those more traditional New Zealand values and policies over the next three, six, hopefully nine years of that government, albeit with, as you correctly say. Some some wokeism wouldn't have been present to nation in a national government even ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you're saying is correct. You're never going to find a party that that you know gives you a hundred percent of what you want. If you if you, you do find a party that gives you a hundred percent of what you want, then you need to question whether or not you're a cult member. <laughs> you know, but but I always say to people, you know, for this election, it's very important. This election, we have to remove the the, the you know the the racists that we have in power, the people who wish to separate yep. us, uh, yep. dominate us, subjugate us, control us, they need to be gone. And that means yep. that we have to really make sure that the Labour Party, the Green Party and Te Party Maori are taught a very valuable lesson that the voters are important. And we don't. We live in New Zealand and we don't want and don't need to have all of this, you know, uh, these pathways to separatism that we're heading on, whether it's whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, whether you're, you have the right ancestors or not, um, whether you're what they call progressive. You know, it's all about controlling and dominating language and behaviours. And we need to we need to go back to and not so much the hedonistic values of the individual, but protect individual rights and and human rights, uh, and fight for those like they mean something. You know, it's all very well to have have campaigns around the country um, talking about freedom of speech, but when you get a real test of freedom of speech and you are found to be wanting in that regard, then we need to totally. hold you to account for that. Even the race issue, though, Cam, it's interesting you should raise that one. It might surprise you to hear me say this, but I'm actually I am reasonably supportive of some of that that agenda. But I'll, but I'll tell you, here's the difference: um, under Finlayson and prior to that, under Doug Graham and the National Government, you yeah. actually had quite a bit of a, a progress in that space. But they did it in a way that took the country with them. So yeah. so instead of forcing it down our throats and saying this is what we're doing, tough luck if you don't like it. They explain what they're doing. They were, they brought the country along, and in the process of doing that, they healed a lot of wounds that that otherwise wouldn't have been healed. The difference with these guys is it's it's basically our way of the highway. So I'll give you a really good example of that. This stuff around naming conventions over government departments and even yeah. some some local body immunity. I actually haven't got an issue with that, provided you take people with you. And the way you take people with you is a you put both the English and the Maori version, so you make sure that people can actually understand, yep. and b you do it in a way where you're explaining to people why you are doing it. So I do fear. And this is a reaction, don't get me wrong, this is a pendulum. Mm. So, so when I look at some of my compatriots on the right, there, there's, some, there's some fairly racist reactions to this yep. stuff, and it's a, re, it's a response and a reaction to what, to what the government's doing. And, it's, and it's, it's because of that. So if they were doing it in a different way where they're actually bringing people with them, I suspect you would find there'd be a lot more support for it. So it's not so much what they're doing, it's how they're doing it. It's how they're forcing it down people's throats. Oh, totally. Absolutely. You, you're 100% correct on that. We're, we're, you know, and it's been done in a in a rather sinister way as well. You know, you're seeing it's it's been organised. You know, we've seen all of them, all of the news media in lockstep. You know, we've got it. We've got an article in the Herald on Tuesday where there's some guy who's a sports coach who's saying that he's a better sports coach 
because he um, has incorporated, you know, um, Maori science into his sports coaching. I was thinking, what? This is nuts. I know. You know, it's it's crazy. There's no critical. You know, it's 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 almost like there's this, and I don't want to sound racist because I'm not, but this Maori wonderfulness that that it's a, a revisionist view of the past and creating a fantasy that a lot of academics and particularly government people as well buy into that there was this nirvana in New Zealand that was upset by these awful colonialists that came here. And, and so it, that comes from, and you'll be sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that comes, and you'll be familiar with this, obviously. But that, that's that's not just about Maori culture. That's that's critical race theory. That's the whole concept of white privilege. And so that comes from this idea that that indigeneity is as a, as a, a quality and a virtue, and that and that indigenous peoples in any land can do no wrong, mm. um, and that the and that the cause of society's ills is is colonialism, and and ultimately, if you take it back to its you know its basis, it comes from sort of the, the Caucasians who you know have infected the world. With their disease. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some aspects of colonialism that we should be ashamed and embarrassed of. I'm, I'm the first to say that there are some aspects. Of, if you if you think about what colonialism was driven by, and it's interesting because it segues back to how we started this conversation. Yeah. It was driven primarily by Christianity. It was yeah. driven by the battle between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church was wanting to get to nations first with the Bible in one hand and trade in the other with their version of what of, of the message of the gospel. And so and and so to the extent that they did that, there were some atrocities that were carried out in the process of doing that. But, and that's fine. I think we should, we should acknowledge that, we should be honest about it and we should recognize it. But let's not then turn that on its head and pretend that everything that was virtuous in the nations that we came to until the Europeans came. There was there were some pretty atrocious things going on in New Zealand and, and or Aotearoa, if you want to call it that, in other parts of the world at that period of time as well, which were um, assuaged by by the entrance of Europeans. There were some good things that came with that. But here's the thing about this that I find most fascinating, is if those who promote this idea that colonialism was a bad thing and should never have happened had their way, uh, with the exception of a, of a handful of POMs who've immigrated here over the last sort of, you know, 50 years and a few other nationalities, almost none of us, European or Māori, would actually have ever been born. And that's the idea. So these people who are arguing for, you know, a return or reversion back to this previous society would never have existed if that colonialism hadn't taken place. So while it may not have come with, with, with you know, it may not be completely virtuous in terms of the way that it was applied, it, that the society that we now have, rightly or wrongly, is a direct result of that. And so for me, the answer is not to look back, it's to look forward. It's to say, how do we work together as, as, as one people and, and, and work forward and make this the best society that we possibly can? Yeah, and I think we also need to acknowledge um, Maori, Maori's own oral history. You know, the reality is, is that we're all colonisers in this country, including Maori. Yeah. They, they were the first colonisers. Yeah. You know, they yep. came. They came yep. here in a boat, just like everybody else, and yep. uh, and yep. it's kind of forgotten in our history. Things. Now, one last thing I wanted to just touch on, Ashley, that sure. a lot of people don't talk about, is sure. um, is that you are very open in your support for Israel. Yeah, as, yes, am, very, I. Very, very you know, as am I. As am I, and you know, we get. I well, I certainly get attacked for being uh, pro-Israel, for want of a better term. Is that is has your position come about because of your conservatism and your faith, or is there another driver? Uh, yeah, so interesting you say that. So, so although I've been a shocking Christian for the last forty years, one thing I've always been very um, animated on, even when I was a bad Christian, was um, was around um, prophecy, Bible prophecy, yeah. yeah, and and it's something I took a lot of interest in. And so, for a big part of that time, I and I won't bore people with the definition of this, but I was into something called premillennialism, which is this: it's, it's a belief system within Christianity that's got a whole lot of. And one of those was that 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 Israel had been put aside by God because it had disobeyed him, that Christians had taken the place of Israel and were now the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, if you like. Last yeah. 15 or so years, I've realized that's out of garbage. It's complete nonsense. So that, is, is that Israel is, is front and center when it comes to Bible prophecy. It always has been. 
um, it has an extraordinarily role, uh, important role to play in terms of where we are. I obviously believe in this idea that we, we're getting close to the end of civilization, or certainly this particular um, uh, period of civilization, and Israel's absolutely crucial to that. In fact, so much so. Um, I'm not sure whether you're aware of this or not, but I've actually written a couple of books on this topic, and I'm about to publish one of them soon, which is which is actually explaining exactly the role of Israel and where it fits into this oh, bigger picture. Make sure you send me so, a copy. So it, oh, absolutely. So it's tied into my faith. Um, but just putting all of that aside and just looking at it at a secular level, the the the, the barrage, the infective barrage of, of criticism of Israel, the claims of apartheid, um, and most, it's just complete garbage. It is absolute garbage. And when you actually understand this country and its history and you look at the way that it operates, the way that it treats um, uh, people who, who, who in any other nation would, would be treated extremely badly, um, and, and tries to do the right thing by them. And just it, its whole demeanour toward what it sees as its responsibility being a democratic state in the Middle East, um, it's completely at odds with the propaganda that you hear. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a massive supporter and will be till the day I die. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm an, I've that come to this same position. I've always been a, a supporter of Israel. But when I went there in 2014, uh, you know, people say, well, "Why are you going there?" You know, they're at war with um, with the Palestinians, and I said, "Well, no, it's the other way around. Actually, the Palestinians are at exactly. war with Israel." And um, yep. you know, I was accused of all sorts of things. And and look, the country reminded me of New Zealand thirty years ago—a can-do attitude, Absolutely. filled with inventors that are making do and doing things kind of because they have to. And it really yep. reminded me of what New Zealand was like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And, and you know, I, we, I think we've lost, I think we've lost a lot of our, uh, our core strengths in New Zealand um, over the years. And so I looked to Israel as, as, as a guiding light for how through necessity and working together, you can become a great nation. And I just am Wait, hoping that, that after this election, that we put all of this nonsense aside, this polarization, this uh, extremism uh, on both sides, and come together as a nation, and to use the the amazing uh, resources that we have, and the and that includes the human resources that we have, to make New Zealand yep. the greatest country in the world. Couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. Interestingly, and it's probably a good point to end on, but if you want mm. to, if you just tie it back to a biblical position, the, um, if, if you wanted a foreign policy which which just guaranteed you a, 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 you know, a, a pretty benevolent place in the world, it's right at the beginning of the Bible. It's in Genesis 12.3, and it's talking about the, the, the attitude of other nations toward Israel, and it says, I will bless those that bless thee and curse those that curse thee. And, and that might sound pretty simplistic, but if you look at that throughout history, uh, the nations that have attacked Israel and have taken the belligerent attitude toward Israel have ultimately paid the price for that. The nations that have, that have blessed Israel and have done what they can to support it, the United States is a really good example of that, have gone on to be to bigger and better things. Um, so, you know, you, you, you couldn't go too far wrong as a nation to have your starting point as foreign policy of making sure that you were supporting Israel and doing everything that you could to support its position in the world. And that's one of the things that, even though you don't like Winston Peters, that's one of the things he's strongest on is support of Israel. So, so yeah, on that I, note, I know Ashley, that. I think we will leave it there. <laughs> no problem, but hey, I've enjoyed the chat. Thanks for the opportunity. No problem. Thank you very much, Ashley Church. I thoroughly enjoyed that chat with Ashley Church. His faith is certainly giving him a different perspective on politics and it's clear that he cares very deeply about the direction the country is currently heading in and what we can do about finding solutions to that. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.